This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. Good afternoon, those of you here for the first time. Let me just briefly summarize what happened in the previous three presentations. My name is John Markovich. I teach at Andrews University. I got in, involved in this research for the last, uh, I would say, seven years. Into started with the emerging church and expanded into what is known today as emergence Christianity. In the first session, I talked about what the emerging church is, trying to fairly represent them, uh, what they believe, what they do, what are the reasons behind it, and so on. Of course, I, my, I uh, do have, um, I am a critic of the emerging church movement, but I try to do it in a fair and honest way wait, okay, this is what they believe now, let us analyze and discuss uh, in relation to who we are, we Seventh-day Adventists. In the second presentation, I, okay, because the idea of the emerging church, I found out existed way before the emerging church came into existence in 2000, and the idea of the emerging church was in the existence since the 1960s. That led me to the Second Vatican Council, and uh, I gave a presentation on what happened in the Second Vatican Council and uh, what made the Catholic Church and the Council make a drastic change in attitude and language as it related to the secular world and the Protestant world. And that led us to a person who is credited the most with that change, and his name is Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, both a Jesuit theologian and at the same time a well-known scientist in paleontology and uh, geology. And uh, his uh, work and the readings and the works of emergence led me to another uh, subject, and that is the subject of worldview. And so we did discuss that subject in the session three. Now we are coming to another subject, which I think it's very important, and at the same time very sensitive. And therefore, and that is prayer, contemplation, meditation, spiritual formation, mysticism. And so let us pray, thank God for this day, and then ask for his presence, and then we'll go into it. Dear Father, Thank you for this day, but now we need your help, I need your help, be present. Help us to say the right things, help us to understand the subject matter, so that we may become faithful to you, in Jesus, uh, remain faithful to you. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I have to apologize at the same time. I rarely, I often, when I teach at the university, I make sure that I don't teach four classes in a row in one day. This is a fourth hour, and my voice is already, you can sense it, it's those of you who've been with me since the first one, I am getting tired. So this fourth session will be affected by that. My voice, my brain, my mind, my physical body, 
all of that is take, uh, taking a toll on me, okay? Four hours talking, it's not easy. And you think that during the break, between lunch and break, that I was quiet. I was not. People ask questions and I talk. So it's more than four hours. That's okay. That's life. It comes with the territory. I understand. All right. I had a privilege, as I mentioned to you earlier. I attended um, this meeting at Dallas uh, convention in 2009, I believe October 2009. It was an emergent church. And so I saw that in the advertisement that Brian McClare and some leading people of the emergence will be there. And I went there, and one of the main speakers, of whom I never heard before, I did not know him, Richard Rohr, he was there. And Richard Rohr is a Franciscan priest and also a well-known mystic. And uh, so I uh, had a privilege listening to him. And on two occasions on this conference, I also attended a conference workshop in Albuquerque in May, May 2010. Also, uh, Richard Rohr was uh, one of the main presenters. And um, that one was titled Emergence Christianity. Okay. So, let me just share with you something here he said, you know. I had this privilege listening to him, and this is, he was in his, uh, his uh, Richard Rohr, and also Brian McLaren is his late 50s, I believe, by now. I believe he's probably just a few years older and younger than I. I mean, I'm, in, I'm 64, so these are my peers. I mean. um, so in his late 60s, fine gentlemen, both of them. These are nice people. If you were to ask me, give me, describe Richard Rohr or Brian McLaren by one word, I would probably say lamb. They're really nice gentlemen, fine people. But what they teach, and I strongly disagree with. Rohr spoke with a very soft and humble fatherly noise. I'm sorry, another apology here. I don't have this presentation on the slides. So I'll keep this, just I refer to it once in a while. So I will basically read my work here and talk. Okay? Um, he spoke with soft, humble voice, fatherly voice, about the shortcomings of dualistic thinking. Now catch that word, dualistic thinking and need to acquire, according to his word, new software, as he puts it. He, so he uses high-tech language, okay? The younger generations understand when we say, what is software? He was not talking about replacing Microsoft Word with WordPerfect. But he was talking about replacing the operating system itself like replacing PC system with Apple operating system. You see, those two are incompatible. That, that's what he meant, new operating system. He, would, he said, we Christians need new operating system to learn how to think non-dualistically when we contemplate about divine 
thieves. Dualistic thinking, according to him, which is pretty much what this is what he means by dualistic thinking. Analytical thinking, critical thinking, where we distinguish between polarities, like white versus black, or white versus red, or black versus yellow. You see, you distinguish. Okay? Tall versus short. Bad versus good. Righteous versus sinful. This dualistic thinking is the way we have been trained to think from childhood. It is, and you probably heard sometimes in, as you listen to these people, they will say, it is either slash or, either or thinking. And that's how we do think. Every time I, every word that I speak to you now, your brain is processing very fast. You're not even aware of that. It's processing through this dualistic thinking. It's always comparing. Do you follow that? Always. So that you can understand what's going on. Now he is telling us that when it comes to divine themes, divine subjects. This dualistic thinking is in the way to understand it. In other words, we have to replace our software with another software where we will think non-dualistically. Okay? And I'm quiet because I want, you, I want, to, I want that to sink. You really got it. I'll, let, I'll tell you personal experience when I was there, this is in Dallas. This was for the first time I listened to him. And I, I was there Thursday, Friday, four days. When I came back to Andrews, came back home, it took me another week to come back to my normal thinking. I was so tired. Because as I was listening to him, I was taking a lot of notes and carefully listening to what he says. Because I was afraid that if I just relaxed and listened to him and begin to adopt what he's saying as part of my thinking, I would have probably fallen into it. And that's what all those people there, they paid the fees to attend there to learn. And they listen, and, and I don't know how careful that's, but I was there. And I can, I can test, uh, tell you this, Ellen G. White tells us we have to be careful when we go to people who do not teach biblical doctrines. We have to be very careful when we go to their meetings if you go there with an attitude to learn, you may walk out with something that you learn from them. Angels will not necessarily protect you. But I went there and I prayed, especially when I went second time. Now, honestly, I don't want to go anymore because it's, I had enough. 
But to me, to go there, you ha I had to be very careful how to when listen, and it really got tires me. But you know, because I think dualistically now, somebody telling me, "Hey, if you want to understand divine truths, you have to think non-dualistically." I said, "Wait a minute, man! What in the world are you telling me?" So that's why I'm, I hope you you know begins to sink all this. So be careful here. Listen to me. According to Rohr, dualistic mode is a primitive, immature way of thinking. It is even predatory. Although dualistic mind is how our brains operate, and there is nothing wrong with it for daily existence. And he will say, we need it for a daily existence. In order to do business, you need to think dualistically. And so on, in order to do business and so on, whatever. That's a real world. Dualistic thinking is necessary to function in the world of business, but not in the world beyond. If we want to experience spiritual truths, divine love, divine forgiveness, divine presence, it is essential that we learn to think non-dualistically. This non-dualistic state of mind is actually a superior level of contemplative consciousness. A third eye, as he calls it, a third eye, which can see that reality. Asked by someone from the audience, do you mean that in that state of mind I should stop thinking? And Roe responded, well, yes. It is at this level of consciousness that the practitioner can begin drawing from the deep well within self where the existence presence, capital P, understood by him to be the Holy Spirit, is sealed within. His schema of spiritual development consists of nine levels. Now, Richard Rohr has nine levels. Other mystics have either seven, six, five. Some psychi uh, psychi uh, no, psychoanalysis or psychiatrists. They, they all have different levels and different number of levels, but that's all beside the point. It's not important. What is important, they, all of them have these different levels. Okay? Now, according to Rohr's levels, this is, this is going on. This is the following. Um, the highest level is, of course, level nine, but for dualistic mind, the highest level, it's about five or six. Now, people who are not educated, simple people, uh, maybe one year elementary education, hardly know to read, they are there in about the first level. The more education you have, so for him, with my education, I would be in about fifth, sixth level. That's about where I would be, okay? And then he says, uh, okay, next is, to reach the highest level. That means to cross from the fifth, sixth level into the seventh, eighth level, you have to be trained. You have to learn how to cross that threshold. And that threshold is achieved only through learning to think non-dualistically. That means to get into that level of consciousness, which is now contemplative consciousness. The question is, how do you do that?
Well, you do it through spiritual disciplines. Now, you heard of spiritual disciplines and you heard of spiritual formation. And that subject, very touchy, okay? very sensitive. What is spiritual formation? That's a question. What is, what are spiritual disciplines? I also mentioned to you, spiritual disciplines are anything that you do in a disciplined way to reach a spiritual state from one point to the next. So you can have a prayer walk. You can you're walking and trying to reach a higher state of consciousness or you pray, you want to be with God and so on. It's nothing wrong with taking a walk and contemplating. And by the way, I have to put a footnote here. When we use, we use this term contemplation and meditation, and that term is nothing wrong with using those terms. Even in Psalms, in the scripture, we have David tells us, I meditate upon your law. Okay? So meditation and contemplation is biblical. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, per se. But the difference is that there is difference between mystical, what Richard Rohr is talking about, contemplation meditation versus biblical contemplation meditation. You see, now we are in the waters. How do you talk about prayer? Is there a wrong prayer and a right prayer? Would you say, is there? You would say. What you mean is a wrong way to pray and a right way to pray. I mean, how do you talk about prayer, contemplation, meditation, all of that? This, this is what I earlier said. It's very, we have to be very careful, we Adventists. Because we are sensing and we see that something is not right here. But you cannot go and teach against meditation and contemplation and prayer. So we have to carefully analyze and break this down in order to explain what is going on so that we are not deceived. Pagans pray and we pray and Catholics pray and Christians and non-Christians, they all pray. Jesus says, do not pray like them. Oh well, they pray and we pray. So when it comes to prayer, what I find interesting is the following. When people begin to emphasize prayer, and the emphasis goes so far that somehow it is becoming at the cost of something else, I, be, I, begin, I see red flags. The point is, prayer, there is no, you have, okay, if you pray a public prayer, obviously you should choose proper words because you are representing the, the entire public as you pray for, as you are asked to pray for a, in front of the public. 
when you pray alone, I mean, you can pretty much open your heart and speak your own language and even with grammatical errors, okay, go ahead. When, it, when people ask Jesus how to pray, Jesus gave him such a simple prayer. I mean, I, it's, I find the Lord's Prayer is so simple. Nothing complicated about it. Just say several, you know, about a dozen of lines, and they are so simple, straightforward. There is nothing contemplative about it, mystical. There is nothing uh, foggy. There is nothing uh, difficult to understand, needs explanation. And I'm willing to argue that a lot of people are making careers on this, arguing for certain art of prayer. Biblical prayer, you read all the biblical prayers. What is it? It consists of direct talk to God. Either praising God for what God has done. Most of the Psalms are praise. But you also have plea for help. You have prayer. To me, the most beautiful prayer is Daniel prayer, Daniel's prayer in chapter nine, Daniel chapter 9. You have a confession. You have pleading with God, leaving it in God's hands. There is nothing foggy there. It's so clear. And so when we get into this question of prayer, I, I have to be careful because I don't want to condemn certain kinds of prayers because after all people pray and Holy Spirit is the one who works there. But I am also afraid that sometimes prayers can lead us into presumptuous faith, presumptuous way of living. And sometimes prayer is being abused. Mystical prayers lead you into training to become a mystic. To and mystics, let me now add to this, mystics are people who mastered level of consciousness where they do not think dualistically. That is who mystics are. To become a mystic, you need to be trained. That means you become kind of, you have a mentor who helps you. And Richard Rohr says, some of you uh, may go through this process of training three, four weeks. Some of you will take uh, several months. And he says, some of you, the way of your personality is, some of you will, can never become mystics. I would never become a mystic. I don't, first of all, I do not believe that I should allow anybody else to make me stop thinking. And another thing is I would never allow myself to or hypnotize myself into state of being of not thinking. Because why? Because I am convinced, now you correct me if I'm wrong, when God created us, humans. He created us in his own image. What does that mean? He created us on purpose with a rational mind where we do use our faculty of reasoning. 
And therefore, anytime people begin to suggest to me that I need to alter my faculty of reasoning. So they are telling me I will understand divine truths better if I train my mind to slow thinking process and eventually stop distinguishing. I said, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not what God wants me to do. God, matter of fact, says, come, let us reason. So my, my advice to people is, you know, every time they come, to whatever they speak about, these prayers, meditation, contemplation, listen and try to figure out what are they talking about. Whether it is, they're talking about some type of hypnosis. But, or self-hypnosis, or you are, and the point is that when you are trained and you are able to slow down in your process of thinking, you come to the state of level of consciousness where you will be able to communicate with either the divine within you or the divine outside of you. So, he would explain to people what to do, how to do it, and then he would let people go out. And in that place there, it was a resort, there were a lot of places where people can go out, and people would go out, and they would, and they would give them, he would give them approximately four directions, like find the, find the focus of your, um, uh, of your meditation, that can be anything. It can be a stone, it can be a rock, it can be a flower, it can be a tree. And then focus on that. Now, I am not going to demonstrate this to you because I haven't done it. Uh, I will not try to it, and I, and I suggest you strongly don't try it. And he says, focus on it, and then use mantra. Now, do you know why mantra are useful? You can use mantra, even they, they would suggest, Christian mantras would, you can take John 3.16, you can take a phrase, God is love, and just keep repeating it. Okay? The point of mantra is not what you say. Sometimes it is. All depends what, what phrase it is. But supposedly for Christian mysticism, you use biblical phrases. Well, but the, uh, the effect is the same. Mantra is used when you focus on, a, on something and you, you need mantra to keep repeating, you repeat in your mind, that, because you are repeating it, that begins to slow your process of analytical thinking. You begin to slow your mind because it's busy with repeating. It begins to stop distinguishing between tall and short, right and wrong and all that. It stops thinking. And slow, it helps you in the process to stop thinking. And brings you to a state where you, and sometimes if you had an opportunity to see, people who get to that, that level, their state of mind, they are not aware of their surrounding. And it is at that level, according to him, you will hear voice. And if you wish, respond to it. So what happened is that some people would go out and uh, I would go out and carefully just sit on the side. I see a few of them 
I don't want to be intrusive and insulting, so, but I observe what's happening. So after an hour and a half, we come back and some of them are sharing their experiences. And one gentleman in his about, I would say, 30s, shared his experience. And he said he focused on a tree. He contemplated, you know, went through the process. And he said, wow, he was all excited. He said, tree spoke to him. And the tree told him that he, I am very appreciative that you stopped by. People pass by me and nobody pays attention to me. I've seen a lot of things happen. Now, please, don't laugh. This is serious. And people don't pay attention to me. And I'm often lonely. I'm sad. But I'm glad that you are. And the guy said, I felt so sorry for the tree. I got up and I hugged it. What are we talking about here? What's going on? I am convinced that was not the Holy Spirit. And the other people had their experiences. So that, okay, now, is that individual a mystic? I don't know, but he had a mystical experience. And there are works done along these ways. And one lady, her name is um, I'm sorry, let me just let me just a moment here. Haggerty, I believe her last name is yeah, Haggerty. I forgot. Well, that is, okay, I'm sorry, but it is when you get off the script, as I sometimes do, that's a problem. Her name is Haggerty. She used to be a correspondent. She grew up in, a, uh, in the family whose mother, ma her mother was uh, um, so what is the name of these people? I'm sorry, getting tired of Scientologists. Scientologist. And eventually, as a young lady, she grew up and she began to move more into secular lifestyle. But then eventually, by, by the time she became middle ages, I would say late 30s, she met a lady, a befriended a person who was telling her that she, that lady that she met, uh, had some mystical, strange experiences. That now brought Haggerty into pulled her back into her own childhood, and then she got interested in doing some research. And she wrote a book, it's called The Fingers of God, Fingerprints of God. So if you're interested, you can get into that. It's a very interesting report. And she's saying is that, because she did a kind of a research and she published that book, she's saying that more than 50-some percent of Americans are reporting of having mystical experiences of some experiences like, 
feeling a strange presence around them, feeling some electrically charged air around them, seeing beings with light, um, having some different kind of strange experiences. This is becoming more and more evident in the lives of the people. So people are connecting with, oh, I had that. I, many people desire to have it. And so they are getting into this uh, mystical experience they want to have. Some, of course, some people maybe hallucinate, some people may see who knows what, but it would be ridiculous on our part to deny it, to ignore it, it is real. It's taking place in society. Now, how do we respond to it? How do we help people? And how do we protect our youth from being curious into it and going into something like that? Now, let me say something. What is a spiritual formation? That's a question, another important question. What is it? Well, spiritual disciplines lead you into spiritual formation. You, in order to, do spirit, to, achieve, to achieve spiritual formation, you need to do spiritual disciplines. Now, Richard Rohr, and I quote him because he is a foremost full-fledged mystic and recognizes such. Um, and Richard Rohr says, every spiritual discipline invented has one purpose, to lead you into contemplative consciousness, even rosary. Those are his words. I'm not going to argue with him. He knows what he's talking about. And so what is spiritual formation? Spiritual formation, to put it in Adventist language, Protestant language, is what Protestants or Christian Adventists use. We, talked about, we talk about sanctification. And I think spiritual formation is a term for sanctification. Now, when you and I use the term sanctification, we are sanctified. It's a process of being sanctified. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we do certain things in a way that God prescribed it for us. That that process and God sanctifies us. Am I correcting that one? Or would you correct me? Maybe I'm mistaken. Well, spiritual formation is things you do in order to form your spiritual character and yourself. So there is a strong emphasis on you do it. Okay? That is the difference that I see. Because you, have, you go to these practices and you always do it and, and meditate and contemplate certain times, certain places, certain ways in order that God, you speaks to God, God speaks to you. Another objective that I have, an uh, objection that I have, and I would like, I like to point out to it is, I don't believe that you and I can do anything to pray 
and bring ourselves to a point where God will speak to us. You and I can pray anytime and we can open our hearts to God and we can speak to God. But for God to speak to us, that's of his choice. If he chooses to speak, he will. God already speaks to us. That's in the word of God. And I hear often among us Adventists, and I say Adventists because I'm Adventists, because I'm in Adventist circles. And I hear a lot of Christians who pray and they ask God for some really foolish things and sometimes I think well, it's problematic. For example, I heard people who are telling me, a person was telling me his experience, suffering from illness, all of that, and praying very hard to God. God, show me yourself. Tell me you love me. And then gave me a beautiful experience. I mean, how he was healed and all of that. I mean, who am I to judge him? Yes, he went through all of that. He saw a person appear at the bed, at the foot of his bed, light person, light in light, sounds like he believes it was Jesus, told him, yes, I love you. But then later I saw things that that same person would say, to me it was clearly unbiblical. So what do I make out of it? We have to be very careful because we are talking here about some phenomena. How do you distinguish what spirit talks to you? What would you do if you have, what kind of questions do you ask God to reveal to you? I mean, what kind of questions are you asking? And I have come to conclusion after all of these studies, and I'm still learning of this. This is very difficult topic, so I have to be careful, and I'm trying to be careful. Because I don't want to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. You know, Holy Spirit works in his own way, so I, I cannot tell how Holy Spirit how to work. But I can tell you one, another one experience, and I, that's in the article published last week or month of June, that article, Lover of Seducer. Pick it up, read it. This is true experience. A friend of mine was giving Bible study in former Yugoslavia. And a person was attending his Bible study and studying the Bible, loved the Bible, studied all. But when they came to the, by, to the Sabbath, the person had a difficult time to accept it. The Bible believes the Bible is the word of God, reads the Bible, but he said to my friend, you know what, uh, I will pray about this. And went and began praying and praying, God tell me, should I observe Sabbath on Saturday or Sabbath on Sunday? And then one day he comes, he came to my friend, and he told him, listen, I've been praying about this, and 
Jesus appeared to me because he saw a light person again at the feet, the foot of his bed, person in light. He believes it was Jesus. And the person told him, you just hold unto your Orthodox faith. Because this person was Eastern Orthodox. So he comes to my friend and says, listen, I prayed and Jesus revealed to me that I should hold and remain Orthodox and therefore we are not studying the Bible anymore. And that was the end. Couple years later, my friend, he said, I forgot about him. Couple years later, somebody knocks on the door of my house. I open the door and here he stands. And then he tells him, he said, you remember me? Yes. You remember what I told you? Yes. He says, you know what? I went home and ever since then, I did not have peace. Something was wrong with my decision. Finally, after this time, he said, I decided I'm going to go back to the Bible. And I read the Bible, and I'm convinced that the Bible, what the Bible says, that's the word of God. I am ready to accept the Sabbath I want to. And came back, and he's baptized, and became a pillar of our church. Now, what's the point here? The point is, sometimes we ask God questions which he answered already in the scriptures. And if you ask him again, you are now presumptive. Now, why do I make that conclusion? I read a statement, Ellen G. White in Desire of Ages, page 126, makes a very interesting statement. Uh, to basically quote it so that I miss, don't misspeak. I wrote it here in the beginning of my Bible. Faith claims God's promises and brings forth fruit in obedience. Presumption also claims the promises but uses them as Satan does to excuse transgression. Page 126. But you read paragraphs before it and paragraphs after. It is, that statement is couched right in the middle of the story of Jesus' temptation in the desert. So when you read Matthew and you read the account of the temptation, what does it say? Jesus was baptized, and right there, God speaks, this is my son. Next verse, okay, chapter, but chapters and verses divided are not inspired, so take that out. Next verse is next line. And the Spirit took them out in the desert, and he was to be tested, tempted. And the, what is the first question that Satan, the first statement Satan makes? If you are the Son of God. You see, that's the question. It's not, can you make the stones into bread? Jesus heard, this is my son. That's a testimony that he is the son of God. Satan asked him, if you are a son of God, then do this. If Jesus had acted, he would have acted presumptuously. See, that's the point. So, 
And then you have a lot of examples. When Balaam, you know Balaam? When those people come to him and they said, King Balak, Balak sent us to you because you know about these people and you can curse them and here are the gifts. Now Balaam is the prophet of God. What should have Balaam do in that moment? What was his mistake? Instead of telling them, listen, guys, your king knows that I'm the prophet. You know that I, you know, I know about these people. I cannot curse them. Therefore, go back to your king. No, what does he do? He makes a mistake. He says, well, you stay here. I'm going to ask God. What are you going to ask God about? So he's asking God. God tells him, don't go. Then they go back, they come back, they say the question. Now, this is second time. Balaam is supposed to know. He should have told them, listen, I told you the first time, go back. No, he says again, stay here, let me go ask God. You know what's going on? God will always honor our requests. If you don't like the first answer, he will give you what you like to hear. Either he or he will let somebody else to give it to you. And you know this whole story. I mean, even God was sending him so many messages not to do it. He still wanted to. In other words, the bottom line is Balaam wanted to do it. So when this friend of my, of my friend, he doesn't, he doesn't like the Sabbath message. Let me pray. What do you have to pray? What do you have to ask God when he already said it? So he'll give you the answer you want to hear. But in his grace, he's not going to give you mercy. I mean, he'll not leave you in peace. He's not going to trouble you. Well, you know, I made the wrong decision. Something's not right here. The same thing, my friends. This is what's happening, and I'm sensing that. There are a lot of our young people, a lot of us, you know, to read the scripture, to try to understand it, to obey it, it's more difficult. It's much easier to pray, contemplate, pray and cry and whine. And one day God will say, okay, I mean, go. So, I don't know to give you, uh, you know, I don't know if you expect from me an answer. To me, spiritual formation is a counterfeit to sanctification. To me, all this language, it's a language of seducer. I already mentioned to you today. I don't know how many of you, what's the time, okay. How many of you have met people, we use another term. You know what a seducer is? Do you really know what seducer is? When I share this with my students, my students, girls in class, some of them get frightened. And they say, well, you know, how, how will I recognize whether the young man is a seducer or a true lover? And as soon as you ask that question, then you realize the responsibility to recognize who is a true lover, who is, has intention to marry you, 
versus a seducer whose intention is to take you to bed for one night. The responsibility is on the girl. And it becomes frightening. How do I know? I say, well, you know what? That's where it comes to you learn. I hope you have good parents who can teach you. I, I hope you listen to the advice of others. I hope you figure out and you don't fall for promises. You open your ears and you learn to recognize the language of a true lover versus seducer. We live in that age and many of us are falling for the language of Satan. That's my, those are my conclusions. I may be wrong, but I, I don't think so. I mean, it's something, it's going on. We are losing a lot of young people. We are doing evangelism, and I'm for it, but what do we do when I, what do I do to win two souls in this world and I lose my two children to the world? I mean, we, we, I think you know, we have a serious problem. So this issue on mysticism, I don't think we understand mystics well. I thought before, maybe many of you, mystics are you know, some hermits who pray alone a lot, spend all day and all that. No, mysticism is way more than that. As Richard Rohr puts it, it's a completely new software. It's a new way of thinking. And that is, I think it's beginning, this whole thing, it's preparing the stage where one day Satan and evil angels will appear and people will take it for real. And they'll argue, this is Jesus Christ. And how you and I, how, I mean, will, are you able to distinguish what would you do if you have on TV? Well, look at that. New York Times Square. Jesus appeared and he's telling us about, and then it goes on. How would you respond? So I'll stop here because the time is running out. I'm going to get about 10 minutes. Questions? Yes. Oh yeah, that's if you if you have noticed if you study film industry and media and television shows, it is an increasing number of this contemplation, meditation, spirituality, uh, mysticism, spiritism, spirits, all of that. It's becoming more. There are more shows of that, and also there are novels, there are stories. And that is becoming more and more as normal rather than weird, weird and strange. So that's just a trend. That's, that goes with it. Yes. Louder. I don't know, but I can see traces in here. I deal with young people all the time. I hear some people make statements. People, students tell me what's going on here and there. 
I see that it is affecting us as well. Um, uh, don't tell me how deep, how do I? Sometimes it's serious, I don't know how to measure it. Don't, don't ask me to quantify it because I'm not able to do it. And uh, I just educate, I'm trying to educate as much as I can. I tell my students, don't do this, don't, don't pay attention, be careful. We have to be careful not to be judgmental because we judge each other, we have divisions. I, I, it's, it's very, that's why it's sensitive. I think we are affected by emergent ideas, concepts, all that. Sometimes a little too far, goes too far. I don't know. Yes? So if you were at a meeting, and um, what would be a red flag for you at an Adventist meeting? Because I went to a church, <coughs> and I was very blessed, and then the next week I get a letter in the mail saying that this particular person was into the spiritual formation. I don't know what to tell you because I don't know. You have to give me details. I cannot tell you. Well, I didn't see anything. That's why I was asking you <coughs> what would be red flags. But you have to tell me what happened at that meeting, everything, and because maybe, maybe there were no red flags. And it could easily be, it could easily be that sometimes you have people who would send you a letter telling you about someone being involved in spiritual formation, because that is their opinion. You don't know. You have to listen, you have to be careful. My advice to you is keep educating yourself what the Bible says. Keep, keep in or, in or, the only way to know the seductive language is to know the true language. If you are well versed in the scriptures and the spirit of prophecy, you will not fall. That's my, and if you end up in a meeting and then you see some things, okay, you will not be swayed. But the problem is that many of us Adventists, and my youth, I can see from my students in the classroom, a large number of us Adventists are biblically illiterate. That's a problem. We somehow, I don't know what happened with our baby boomer generation of the 60s, we somehow began to take the Adventism a little too lightly. And we have produced another generations which are even further away from Scripture. Our, my students, many of them, Many, I don't want to put number, but many of my students, if I mention 1844, if I mention some Advent basic, they have no idea what that is. My, my, I heard my students make a statement that Bible is just a, a, a product of a culture. You know, that's emergent idea. Bible is not a product of a culture. Yes, it is true that it is written with, by a people in a certain particular culture. But if you read the scriptures carefully, the, the scripture is actually a history of a people who have been most of the time disloyal and against the teaching of that very book. And so for you to tell me that the book is a product of a culture, yet the culture live, lives against the book, then it's not. The book comes from somewhere else. So you have these ideas which are being thrown out and people kind of hear it, they think it's cute and they repeat it. So answer is read, pray, study, be well established in biblical truth. And then you will. Yeah, that's one thing that troubled me about some of the 
You have to be careful. Yeah. Yes, Michael. One of the things louder, louder. Oh, the, oh, this is going. No, this goes beyond postmodernity. These guys are talking about post-postmodern. They are talking post-Christian. They're using we are post-Protestant. We are now talking about emergent Buddhism. We are talking about emergent Judaism. We are talking about emergent whatever. I mean, something is, it's more and more emergent, okay? What I am saying, now this is my interpretation. What I'm saying is, I am sensing that this new theology is effectively destroying traditional Protestantism. It is transforming Protestantism with, into something else. And therefore, to me, I would, now I'm stepping here a little too forward, okay? I believe that this is the beast out of the earth. Chapter 13. This is the beast which looks like a lamb, but it speaks like dragon. And it forces, leads, all the peoples to the first beast. See, it does not call worship to self. Emergent theology is interesting. You see, when repository, okay, think about this. How would, how does, okay, how would Catholic Christianity respond to the question, where is the repository of spiritual authority? The answer is, in the church. How would Pentecostal Christianity respond to where is repository to spiritual authority? In the spirit. How would emergence respond? Okay, how would Adventists, we know that. How would emergence respond where is the repository of spiritual authority? It is in what the Holy Spirit does. You see, they would say, they say the, and I wish I can have here. Oh, here is I have something. You know, okay, this is nice. Capital W, work of the spirit. That means what you see going on in the lives of you and me, as we pray, as we contemplate as we participate in society, social activism, as what, uh, as through spiritual formation, whatever it's happening in our lives. And you can see that, you know, people stop drinking, they are praising the Lord, and you know, that work is superior to Do you see that twist? Now, I would always reverse this too. The word of 
the, the, the work of the Spirit, biblically speaking, is not to call people to self, but it is to lead to the Word of God and to Jesus Christ. But to go around, and do you know how dangerous this is? The argument is, and there is an example, one author says, when a homosexual couple comes to me and asks me to, uh, to, uh, to wed them, I recognize because these people love each other and then, you know, these people are good and they do all kinds of things, and they are activists in society, all of that. I recognize the work of the spirit in that couple. And I cannot but wed them. You see, then you have this argument, you know, the word of God, the Bible, the Bible does not answer the questions to our realities. What are they saying? Well, what realities? And they would come up bring, well, for example, homosexuality. Well, the Bible says about homosexuality. You don't like the answer. Therefore, you are praying, asking God, and of course, you're going to get, see, it's a presumptuous way of life. The whole different way of seeing things. The point is the Bible, you see, it's interesting thing is the Bible does answer every single fundamental question of life. That's what the Bible deals with. Now, it does not answer what kind of job you should have. It does not answer how far is the sun from the earth. It does not answer uh, some things of how universe works. Go and learn that on your own. God allowed us. But when it comes to fundamental questions of life, which science cannot answer, though many scientists try hard to do that, and they do it. Bible answers fundamental questions of life. Then I tell emergency, I say, listen, this is what is important. But the way you put it, it's, it's deceptive. That's a problem. I mean, guys, you know, we are entering some faith. It's coming in the future. It's going to hit us more and more. And I see, you know, we have to do it fast. Learn some Bible here. <laughs> this message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.